Let's pray. Take us to the mountain, give us some perspective, and take us into the valley where life happens. Remind us every single moment of our lives that we were created from dust. And today, as we uh, get ready to have the ashes imposed on us, you created us out of ashes. In fact, you can create anything out of nothing. And so as we look out over Lent, let us realize that everything we're going to experience is nothing. Nothing compared to the glory that awaits for us on Easter. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So when Lieutenant Dan asked Forrest Gump if he found Jesus, Forrest responded, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. Not a bad introduction to Transfiguration Sunday. So have you found Jesus? Did you know you were supposed to be looking for him? Or is it that you knew that you didn't need to look for him because he was looking for you? In John chapter 14, Jesus says, well, it's almost time for me to go, but you know where I'm going, so I'll see you when you get there. And Thomas, he says, we've got no idea where you're going, so how could we possibly know the way? And then comes that familiar verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now the next verse is one that we don't know quite as well, but to be honest, it's just as powerful. Philip says, look Jesus, we want some proof. And Jesus says, after all this time, you still don't know who I am? Ouch. Every other week and on fifth Sundays, we confess our faith in the words of the apostles or the Nicene Creed. I believe, we say, and then we list all the things that we believe about God, about life, about heaven, and even about ourselves. But do we really believe all of those? I know we say we do. And at one level, by the way, I know we do. But on another level, I'm not so sure that we're any different from the disciples. We want some proof, Jesus. And Jesus looks at us, not out of pity, not out of anger, but out of love. And, and I know we expect him to say, like he did to Philip, after all this time, you still don't know who I am. But instead, he says, after all this time, you don't know who you are? The disciples were a handful. They argued over who was the greatest. They wanted to call fire down from heaven to consume people that disagreed with them. They narrowed it down to either the blind guy or his parents who were responsible for that guy being born blind. They got upset when they couldn't heal somebody. They were in complete awe over fancy church buildings, thought they were the greatest. And they kept asking when Jesus was going to restore the kingdom of God so that everybody would know that they were now in charge. It wasn't until they saw Jesus bloodied, beaten, and dying on a cross that the truth began to set in. The kingdom of God was already there. It wasn't about power and being the best and everybody noticing you. It was about God reclaiming what sin and Satan had taken from him. The kingdom has nothing to do with fancy churches and blame games and being the greatest. It's about seeing God for who he really is and seeing ourselves for who we really are in his eyes. A long time ago, I used to think it would be impossible for somebody to be in the presence of God day and night for three years and not know who he was. Kind of like Lois and Jimmy and the rest of the people of Metropolis not recognizing Superman was Clark Kent just because he had a pair of glasses on. But then I found myself asking if I really recognized Jesus. I mean, he's right here in my life. He's in this church. He's in our community. He's in this world no less than he was 2,000 years ago. And to be honest, all the way back to the beginning of creation. He was in the bread and wine last week in Holy Communion. 
He's in the water that we use over at the font for baptism. He's in the sunrise and the rain and the cooling breeze that come off the mountains. He's in His Word. Like the disciples, we get so wrapped up in knowing about God, we don't notice Him when He shows up in the ordinary things that make up most of our life. We keep thinking the mystical and holy is out there, outside our life, beyond our normal. And yet think about all the times that God showed up among His people in the Scriptures. It was always ordinary and yet divine, held together with this holy tension of love. Jesus tells Thomas, Faith isn't knowing about the way, the truth, and the life. Knowing about something is nice. But when was the last time that you heard somebody said, you know, I heard it's the best barbecue around. Or, you know, I hear this movie is worth going to. Or I hear that it's worth the price of tickets to go to that event. You see, when I hear that, my first question is, who'd you hear it from? Because they better be very important. Because otherwise, my question is, if it's that good, why haven't you gone? Why didn't you eat the barbecue? Why didn't you go to the movie? Why didn't you spend all that money for that event? You see, when we start thinking about what we know about something, it's not as important as actually knowing it. John 14 is an intimate discussion among Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is getting everyone ready for his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. When he tells Thomas, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes unto the Father except through me, we need to see it in the context of the whole conversation. In fact, we need to see it in the context of all the conversations that Jesus had with his disciples, and even with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody else. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's followed by God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now that paints a very different picture than when somebody uses John 14, 6, no one comes unto the Father except through me. And as Jesus standing at the gate of heaven with a giant flaming sword keeping almost everyone out, almost everyone except the one who's speaking that Bible verse at the moment. This is why we interpret Scripture using Scripture. We let God tell us what he's saying because he's the only one who knows. We jump to Matthew 25. Gets us a little clearer picture. Jesus uses very simple terms to explain who's going to be in heaven and who isn't. He says, I was hungry. You didn't feed me. I was thirsty. You didn't give me anything to drink. I was sick and I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And they respond, we didn't see you, Jesus. Oh, we saw some beggars and some sinners and some prisoners, but we didn't see you. And suddenly all those times that Jesus said, let he who has ears hear, I translated, let those who have eyes and a heart for ministry see what's right in front of them because sometimes what you're witnessing is God reaching down from heaven to give you an opportunity up close and personal to experience His grace and His love. It hits me right between the eyes. We aren't saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith. But when grace grabs hold of us, it changes us. It draws us into the presence of God. And it allows us to be His vessels of mercy and love to the world. In other words, God loves us so that we can go out and love the world. Charles Taylor wrote a book a while back on secularism. In it he said the world got rid of magic and God and said good riddance. He noted the decline of the church is not because of Darwin or any of the atheists who said God is dead. But he claims in the 1960s, 
when the church got rid of the tension between the holy and the ordinary, when Jesus became our best buddy instead of our Savior in a bid to make God more human and humans more godly, well, people discovered there was really no reason to go to church anymore. One of my favorite scenes in The Wizard of Oz, next to the flying monkeys, of course, is when Dorothy arrives at the Emerald City and she's got an audience with the wizard himself. Fire and smoke and flashes of light and thunderous echoes. There is much fear and trembling as Dorothy tries to explain what she wants. Toto, who's not the least bit afraid, runs over and pulls back the curtain, exposing someone who is anything but a great wizard. And this anything but great wizard is pulling handles and twisting knobs, creating the illusion of greatness and power when there really wasn't any. There was nothing unholy when the church pulled the altar away from the walls so people could see the pastor consecrating the elements of communion. There was nothing unholy about people dressing down in order to come to church. There was nothing unholy about more modern music being sung. There was nothing unholy about the congregation members reading the lessons and assisting at Holy Communion. There was nothing unholy about many of the things that the church did. Unless, unless this was an attempt by the pastor, the members, the community, the church at large, to pull back the curtain and expose God as nothing more than an ordinary man hiding behind a curtain, pulling levers and twisting dials, creating an illusion of greatness and power where there really isn't any. Stop there. Are we bringing God down to our level to make us feel good? So that we don't have to feel so inferior? So God can't talk down to us, so he has to look us in the eye? Did we remove the mystical and the holy because they made us feel uncomfortable, nervous, twitchy? Did we peek behind the curtain because we were tired of God being God? Lieutenant Dan, did you find Jesus? Forrest, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. This is where I've always wanted to edit that scene so that Forrest adds in a very Lutheran style. I'm pretty sure he's already found me. I need a story that is bigger than my story. I need a reality that is much bigger than anything that my limited ability could understand. And that's the story that God tells in the Bible. A story of a universe created out of nothing. A story of a universe created just by God, speaking it into existence with a few words. A story of God's love. A story of humanity's betrayal. A story of redemption. Because God couldn't imagine heaven or eternity without us. Along the way, people have tried way too hard to explain everything in the Bible. They've tried too hard to prove everything is true from a human perspective. They've tried to make sense out of things that, I'll be honest, don't make sense because we're not God. They pulled back the curtain, tapped their ruby red shoes three times, let loose the flying monkeys, put God so far into the heavens that nobody could see Him, or brought Him so far down into humanity that He's no different than anybody else. And when God was no longer God, life and the world kind of got lost, and it didn't make sense anymore. You know, the very question, did you find Jesus, makes it sound like God is the one who's lost. Maybe Forrest Gump really was more theological brilliant than he knew when he said, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. See, God is and always has been in our midst. You can't look in any direction, no matter where you are in the universe, and not see his fingerprints. What is often missing is the transfiguration of these things. In our gospel story today, Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Which, by the way, if we only had this text to tell us what the word transfigured means, we'd probably assume that it meant your clothes getting bleached blindingly white 
And by the way, even the Bible says even brighter than any of those commercials could get it. And you also start glowing. But that's really not a transfiguration. That's what happens to a cartoon character when he sticks his finger in the electrical socket or somebody who gets way too close to radioactive material. To fully see the transfiguration, you've got to pay attention. You can't get distracted like Peter did when he wanted to build three altars and probably make some sandwiches because he didn't know what else to say or do. And as a result, he missed out on what was actually happening. You see, when Elijah and Moses show up, the light is growing brighter and the fog begins to lift. Now Moses had been dead for centuries. Elijah, he rose in that fiery chariot into heaven not too much later. Either way, it is impossible for them to be on that mountain with Jesus at that moment. Now most would assume this was magic. Nothing more than a trick of the mind, an illusion. But it's really a reality of the soul. We get our first glimpse of time ceasing to be a neat, straight line, pulled taut, that begins with the beginning and ends with the end. Here on the mountaintop, time is all crumbled up, the past, the present, and the future, all touching like your spaghetti, your meatballs, and your peas on your dinner plate. And long before technology would allow such a thing, God puts on a sound and light show and he thunders, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Peter starts to say, it's good for us to be here, God. I'm going to build some altars. You know what? This is what we do. But before he finishes his thought, the clouds and the fog and the lights and the voice and Moses and Elijah are gone. And it's just Peter, James, John, and Jesus and the mountain. And Jesus says, well, time to head down the mountain. Oh, and by the way, don't tell anybody what you experienced up here until it's time. We learned something about God there. The more he reveals himself to us, the more questions we have. Peter, James, and John all the way down the mountain are discussing, what does this mean? And so while it really is good for us to be here and there and wherever God is, it's not so that we can get answers. Answers often bring a blinding arrogance, a, a feeling that we actually understand everything and so we're very comfortable. But that isn't going to happen until we're in heaven. It is good that we are here and there. And everywhere where God is. Because we're reminded who He is and who we are. And we are not lost because He has found us and He's not letting us go. Peter, James, and John were on that mountain because Jesus said, Hey, you three, follow me. But Jesus brought them into the presence of the Holy. Not so that they would have all the answers. But so they would know that the one they were following, the one they were staking their eternity on, that He had all the answers. Jesus was more than just their best buddy and the guy who could multiply a kid's lunch and turn water into wine. He was the God who could save them. Oh, he looked ordinary enough, but he wasn't. So why are we here? Whether you're in person or watching this online, it's not so that you can become a better person. Oh, that might happen, but that's not why you come to church. You can become a forgiven person, definitely. You can become a person set apart by God, absolutely. But a better person, not so much. You also aren't here so you can become a great leader or learn to walk on water or pull coins out of the mouth of a fish or win debates with religious zealots. You are here because somewhere a pastor or someone else poured water over your head and called you a child of God. You are here because every other week or so you taste the wine and the styrofoam wafer, but you know that Jesus is in, with, and under it. You're here because your life doesn't always make sense. 
You are here because there is a part of you, your soul, that can't be filled up in any other way than through the love of God. And as you listen to all the stories of the Bible, which are also your story, the past and the present and future get all tangled up like the spaghetti, the meatballs and the peas on your dinner plate. And Newtonian and Einsteinian physics can't explain any of it. But that's okay. Because Jesus said, follow me. And as you walk with him, you see things, real things, that can't be explained any other way other than God's grace. Being in the presence of God is not always comfortable. It's not always easy. But being speechless and a little terrified and not knowing what else to do but say, you know, it's good, Lord, that we're here, so you know what, tell you what, I'll build a couple of altars and maybe make some sandwiches. I'll make them for Moses and Elijah. And by the way, should I get some lawn chairs for you guys? It's actually a beautiful thing. It means you recognize the holy and the sacred among us. You recognize the holy and the sacred among the ordinary part of your life. I know we often go to God to get answers. And sometimes, sometimes He gives them to us. But always, and I mean always, we get the presence of God. We don't have to find Jesus. He found us. And that's always more than enough. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.